0: Hello, this is Tom McSweeney and you're very welcome to Maritime Ireland. The Maritime Ireland Radio Show is an audio maritime journal broadcast on 18 radio stations around Ireland and on podcasts, bringing together the community of the sea. Ireland's maritime culture, history, tradition, and development are important to this island nation, where the connection with the sea is as old as time itself, a fundamental part of Ireland socially and economically everyone is welcome to join the community of the sea. The next voice you're going to hear is full of emotion and anger. This man does not come from a fishing family tradition, but he has worked in the fishing industry for 38 years. I'd be
1: quite angry how our industry has been treated. We don't want to I like, seem to think that fishing rights off of our coast is worth defending. Now we'd no bother taking on the European Union in relation to tax for that. That would have got us money. And the government thought that was an issue well worth defending. Surely Irish citizens in an industry that's hard, like it's it's, like, it's so much tragedy, like and everything like that, like but like the resources that are off of our coast, like they are worth defending. They are worth us looking for something. And in communities like us, in Castle Bay, we're 95% on a government economic study, depending on fishing, for our economic survival. If you go to Europe to defend the wrong done to us, and you absolutely do your best, you have no apology to me or to the industry to me. It's the lack of trying that drives me mad. That me
0: around a bit that's John Nolan, managing director of the Castletown Bear Fishermen's Co-op in the West Cork Town depending on fishing for its survival. Our coastal and fishing communities are in serious trouble. The EU Brexit deal has hit Ireland's fishing industry the hardest in Europe. The government and industry accept that. the basic problem, is that the bigger fishing nations got much better deals. The outcome was skewed against Ireland, hit twice as hard. The Taoiseach and Minister for the Marine have acknowledged that. Fishing was the last sector about which agreement was reached on Christmas Eve, described by EU negotiators as a last-minute breakthrough. But was it?
2: Brexit took several years to negotiate, and fishing was the last thing. We're down to the last 48 hours. And proposals were made on the fishing part of the deal at 10 o'clock in the morning. And by four o'clock that afternoon, the EU Commission had produced a 1300 page document in 27 languages to seal the deal. Now, does anybody honestly believe that that was produced in one day? This deal was, in my opinion, this deal was set months beforehand.
0: Interestingly, there has been no objection to the settlement from the big fishing nations, France, Spain, for example, which have done much better. Cormac Burke there, chairman of the newly formed Irish Fishing and Seafood Alliance, from whom we'll be hearing more in the programme, as well as taking you to meet the people who now own the wreck of the liner Lusitania and who have plans for a particularly beautiful part of the Irish coastline.
3: What a beautiful spot it is and how appropriate it is that this museum should be built there. We now
0: own the wreck of Lusitania, for good or ill. <laughs> Con Hayes, who will be telling us about the new plans for the development of the Lusitania Museum at the old head of Kinsale, where he is the secretary. The fishing industry is in serious trouble. Of that, there's no doubt as I've said, it all stems from the very bad Brexit deal and how the EU Commission allocated the effects to hit Ireland particularly hard. Amidst the crisis, a new organisation has been set up, the Irish Fishing and Seafood Alliance, to give the industry a new voice. And Cormac Burke from Killybegs in County Donegal is the chairman.
2: Uh, well, Tom, the Irish Fishing and Seafood Alliance um, was just started earlier this month and it's a uh, a wholly independent non-profit organization and the overall aim is to attempt to unite all sectors of the fishing and seafood industry. Traditionally this has always been a fractured industry, not intentionally so, but because you have so many different regions and so many different sectors um, as like whitefish, shellfish, pelagics as mackerel and uh you know the different sectors so um basically every man was fighting for his own corner and his sector which is understandable but IFSA is now attempting to give all of these regional and uh, varying sectors a voice in the industry
0: so where would it sit in relation to what the public would know already as the uh, fish producer organisations the FPOs as they're called
2: Yeah, there are um, several FPOs in in Ireland uh, and they do an important role. I mean, the producer organisations deal with the quotas and they represent um, their members in their region and uh, the IFSA would hope to work with them. I mean, the core aims are the same.
0: The industry, as you say, has not had a strong voice. It's always been compared for example, with agriculture, which is structured differently anyway. But you bring a particular voice, Cormac, because your background is very much within the voice of the industry through publishing and journalism.
2: Yeah, that's right, Tom. I come from Kitty Beggs and and uh, my family was in the industry and uh, I was a fisherman for 16 years working in Ireland, the UK and Norway. And then after a major back accident, I was out of action for three years um, I became editor of the uh, well-known Irish fishing industry paper, The Skipper. And uh, after seven years there, I moved to London and I was editor of Fishing News and Fishing News International. And uh, I'm back, I moved back to Quebec three years ago.
0: Getting the voice of the industry across is, to put it mildly, difficult and at the present time, particularly, there's a strong feeling that the industry has been let down, so to speak, by the promises of government in relation to what would be achieved in the Brexit agreement, but didn't turn out to be so. There's a lot of feeling of anger in the industry.
2: Yeah, and I and I think uh, that's why it has uh, happened that the IFSA has actually come at a very good time for the industry. I mean, like I say, the organisation is only a few weeks old and there are... Over 700 subscribers already from all parts of the country and from all sectors of the industry. And I think that speaks volumes um, about the anger that's going on um, with regards to the Brexit deal. There are a lot of questions uh, that the industry would like answered. Um, I mean, the, the plainest one is that how come that um, the EU talk about sharing the burden of giving back quota to, to the UK, but... On average, Ireland's quota has been slashed by 26%, and the biggest reduction for any other member state has been 6%. And uh, I think it's important, too, to remind the public that, unlike other countries, the quota in Ireland is not owned by any individual fishermen or any companies. The quota belongs to the state and the people of the state, and yet there is no political will to defend Ireland's marine resource or defend those that are making a living first, um, particularly in the rural coastal communities. From the AFSA's point of view, I would say our mission is probably threefold. And that is, one, to get government recognition uh, to defend this industry against the EU. And uh, the next would be the general lack of political will by, by our government to to uh, help out those in the rural coastal communities because we're not just talking about fishermen. We're talking about the entire economy of small fishing uh, coastal regions. And and, uh, lastly, the, the EU Brexit document that Ireland accepted, and I can't get an answer to the question who signed off on this because there's a deafening silence coming from the Minister's Department. But Brexit took several years to negotiate and fishing was the last thing. We're down to the last 48 hours. And proposals were made on the fishing part of the deal at 10 o'clock in the morning. And by four o'clock that afternoon, the EU Commission had produced a 1,300-page document in 27 languages to seal the deal. Now, does anybody honestly believe that that was produced in one day? This deal was, in my opinion, this deal was set months beforehand. Recently, I've been giving people... Uh, a perfect example of the outcome of the Brexit deal, where Ireland has lost—by the way, the minister's official statement is 43 million, but quota is uh, the value of quota is worked over 20 years. So you can <laughs> you can do the maths yourself. I mean, and and a direct impact in a probable loss of two and a half thousand jobs in the the small regions that are most. Uh, and most in need of of, uh, of this. But the um, the point about other nations is that in the channel between on the other side of England, uh, Ireland has no quota there. But it was very interesting to note that under UK's demands that they use the term zonal attachment, which basically is that you should have the bulk of the quota in your own waters. But the English only had of the place and black soul quota. And when the dust settled on the deal, they got an increase of 0.9%. And when you look at that, hang on, that didn't apply on the Irish side of the UK until you learn that 70% of the quota for place and black soul in the channel is held by the French and the Dutch. So the straight question is where is the equal sharing of the burden that the EU told us about.
0: It's no wonder then the reflection that you're getting that the uh, industry and the fishermen and the coastal communities are angry with those figures being quoted. You have a big job in front of you, Cormac.
2: I have, but I must say I'm heartened with the the, uh, huge response from the industry. And like I say, it's the important thing is, I, I live in Kitty Begs, but I have to live somewhere. Um, you know, uh, when this started first, people were saying, oh, well, he's just a Kitty bags guy, he's only going to speak for Donegal. People have now come to realise that the IFSA is absolutely independent and it's not affiliated to any other group or body and not influenced by any state or semi-state body.
0: Cole McBurke, chairman of the newly formed Irish Fishing and Seafood Alliance. Marine Minister Charlie McConnellogue, also from Donegal, has set up a seafood sector task force, chaired by the former chief executive of Bia, Alan Cotter. And it's to be representative of the industry who've been invited to take part, to look at how Ireland can respond to Brexit. The minister has said he will continue to seek to make use of every possibility to address this unfair outcome. But the EU and the other nations have shown no willingness to share the burden and pain of Brexit with Ireland, and there are fears that the government may seek to decommission sections of the Irish fleet, which could mean thousands of job losses in coastal communities. These are worrying times for our fishing and coastal communities. It's important to follow up on previous stories on the programme to keep continuity for listeners. So, hacking back to marine biologist Kevin Flannery's call for state agencies to talk to each other about opportunities in new species, which fishermen have identified, including anchovy and sardines on the southwest coast, the Marine Institute is planning a new multi-annual research project aimed at addressing gaps in small pelagic stocks including what it describes as southern Lusitanian species moving northwards. Sprat, anchovy and pilchard are the main species concerned. When I told Kevin Flannery in Dingle of this research project, he replied, it's a move in the right direction. Let's hope they do surveys as soon as possible, but in contact with fishermen rather than doing them when species are not there and getting negative results. That reference to the Lusitania takes us to the old Head of Kinsale, projecting into the Atlantic as the ocean strikes the Cork coastline. There are eighteen Napoleonic signal towers around the Irish coastline, small but interesting buildings dating from eighteen oh five. They were intended as defence against French invasion, such as the arrival of Wolf Tone and the French Armada into Bantry Bay in seventeen ninety six. The old head tower is the only one restored for public use. It's also a Lusitania museum with a memorial garden, the centerpiece of which is a sculpture of a wave, including the names of all those who were sailing aboard the liner on its last fatal voyage before it was sunk off the old head by a German submarine. Hayes is secretary of the Lusitania Museum Committee, which now owns the wreck of the liner. It has plans to build an extensive museum around this part of Irish maritime history.
3: Well, I suppose the links with the Lusitania and the Old Head go back along with. Well. The Lusitania took its bearings from the Old Head Lighthouse just when it was being struck by the U-boat. Uh, so there, it goes back that far. Then um, in 1995 a local community group called Courses Rural Development, Uh, they built a a lovely stone monument to commemorate the Lusitania. So that was the first uh, tangible link with the Lusitania, if you like. uh, About 10 years ago, uh, the same group uh, invited me as an ex-local Wilsa to get involved with them and since then we have been working on uh, trying to trying to build the Lusitania Museum, but we, we started by restoring the Signal Tower, and there is a Napoleonic Signal Tower at the highest point of the old head, so we opened that on the 7th of May 2015, which was the centenary of the Lusitania, and it's a kind of a mini Lusitania Museum, because we have a few artifacts, there, like windows and things from the Lusitania, but we have a lot more artifacts we'd like to display, and also we'd like to tell the full story of the Lusitania, and we think seeing that the Lusitania is only 12 nautical miles directly south of the old head it's the ideal spot it's a beautiful spot and it's a poignant connection with the Lusitania now it's a historical accident but that's where it is and that's where that's the connection so we have this mini Lusitania museum in the signal tower but we need a lot more space Uh, and then of course after that we decided to build to design and build the Lusitania memorial garden which is just south of the Signal Tower, and it has um, a monument with the names of everybody who was on the Lusitania in 2015 written on it. We think it's the only monument with a whole lot of the names written on it. There's 1,962 names written on the monument.
0: Even imagine the connection going way back to Napoleonic times. It's amazing to have a building like that, Still restored
3: if you like, there's two separate stories, the Napoleonic signal towers there's eighty one of them around the coast of Ireland, from Dublin to Donegal and we are actually the only one that has been restored as a public amenity, if you like, as a visitor centre. There have been a few others I think restored for private use, but um most of them are still standing in actual fact, they're amazing buildings, very simple buildings, are so square uh, sixteen foot wide square buildings and two stories high. So they're very, very small in actual fact, but yeah, we, we started with that because that was where we had to start. Really, from a planning point of view, we weren't going to be able to do anything until we did something with the tower. So um, we restored it as close as externally. It's like what the signal towers were like when they were built in 1805. Uh, Just after, it was a response to the French invasion of Bantry Bay in 1796. The idea was that you could transmit messages from one to the other and from ships at sea to shore and that the messages could be transmitted up to Dublin Castle in jig time. Now, I think they forgot about the fog, actually, (laughs) along the south coast. (laughs) Not too sure if they ever really made much use of them. Because they fell into disuse with the uh, with Waterloo in 1815, I think they more or less had their their day was done, this is only ten years.
0: And the other fascinating thing, as well as that con, is that uh, in 2019, that's it'll be two years ago this year, but Greg Bemis came to you and actually formally donated the wreck of the Lusitania to ye.
3: He did that's right. Uh, that in itself is a fascinating tale. When we started this project in twenty eleven, twenty ten, twenty eleven, uh, I managed to get in touch with Greg, uh, who has who became a personal friend. Really, uh, I didn't think he would even respond to my email. <laughs> I had a bit of a problem getting a hold of his email, but I got it. And once I contacted him, he was uh, a little bit doubtful. I'd say first about who we were and what we were at. But anyway, uh, we met. He came over to meet us. <laughs> And gradually he began to, I suppose, trust us really. And, um, we established a very strong relationship with him, but he really surprised us. Now, he was of a good age, he was getting a bit worried about what was going to happen to his Lusitania legacy. And, uh, I think he saw us as, uh, the, the, the people to, to put it in, he decided to put it in our hands. And so, out of the blue, he offered us, he said, would you like to take ownership of the Lusitania? No, we were a bit gobsmacked, to be quite honest. We did not expect that. Uh, he had promised us after facts and had given us after facts in the meantime. So, yes, yeah, on the 7th of May in 2019, he came to the old head and formally signed over ownership of the wreck to us. So we now own the wreck of the Lusitania for good or real.
0: <laughs> That's a big responsibility,
3: yeah, it is, yeah. It's, it's, <laughs> no, I wouldn't think we we're, were. Yeah, it's a, I suppose we were, we were taken over ground, really, by this generosity. He came over as well then in twenty in 2018. He was actually with us to unveil a Lusitania Davit that has a very interesting history because it was trawled off the, out, off the Old Head way back in the 1960s, made its way to Northern Ireland, to Newry. And we discovered it was up there, standing on its lonesome in a field. And um, we got in touch with the local politicians and the local people, and they agreed to donate it to us. It's a very big thing. You can stand alongside it and give it. You can touch it and you can feel it. And you can the it, uh, it curves at the top, and we put the we put that part pointing out to where the Lusitania is resting in ninety metres of the water.
4: You need a
0: bit of more generosity from the public now you've had a lot of generosity as you say there but because of your plans now you're going to look for more public help we
3: do need more help all right uh, well for actually after commissioning uh, an architect and his team to design the museum properly, which will be will wrap, wrap itself around the, the Lusitania, the, the garden, and the tower. The tower will be inside, and the Lusitania Memorial Garden will be inside this uh, building. And um, it will be a modern museum, uh, which will be uh, costing significant money. But we're just focusing at the moment on the design phase, and we are uh, starting a GoFundMe campaign. And uh, we're hoping to raise maybe 150000 to take us past the planning stage so that we can get full planning permission and take it from there then to look for major funding from um, government grants and EU grants and stuff like that. But uh, we are hoping that the general public will, who have been extremely generous in all sorts of different ways, I mean, the local people around the Old Head and Balance people have been magnificent. But further afield as well, people come from all over the country, really, to see the Old Head. Anybody who has been to the Old Head and the Lighthouse and the Signal Tower uh, would appreciate what a beautiful spot it is and how appropriate it is that this museum should be built there.
0: On the maritime scene, international maritime lawyer Michael Kingston has joined Conway's solicitors, maritime law specialists led by Dermot Conway in Cork. Michael Kingston is well known from his leadership of the Betelgeuse Family Association from the Whitty Island oil tanker disaster and is an expert in maritime law who has worked for the United Nations. In Waterford, John Lynch, chairman of the Irish South and East Fish producers' organisation, has taken over as chief executive following the death of Hugo Boyle. Much missed in the Irish fishing industry. And in Donegal, Kieran Doherty has been elected chairman of Killybegs fishermen's organisation. He succeeds Michael Kavanagh. Hard to believe, perhaps, but a story has appeared in scientific websites about research being done to see if covert, military and naval messages could be hidden amongst the sounds emanating underwater from whales and dolphins. It probably reflects the increasing levels of underwater noise, which has led to 500 maritime scientists calling for worldwide regulations to control the underwater soundscape. Analysis of their work in the international journal Science says there is a cacophony of noises underwater from human activity which is deafening or disorienting whales, dolphins and other marine mammals that rely on sound to navigate. Dave Hall, conservation officer at the Irish Whale and Dolphin Group,
4: discusses now an ocean of noise. The Irish Whale and Dolphin Group has been highlighting the issue of ocean noise for many years now. I suppose it's an issue that we struggle to get the public to understand because it's not like oil slicks or plastic pollution which you can see in the ocean. Nevertheless, it has as major an impact, if not even a greater impact, on the conservation of our protected whale and dolphin species. Noise pollution comes from many sources, from boating and shipping, to seismic surveys for oil and gas, to the use of military sonar, piling, drilling, anything you do with major machinery in the ocean generates noise, Um, even up to acoustic noise deterrence for aquaculture. And most recently, there's been a paper showing that bottom trawling creates noise that is potentially harmful to marine mammals. The impacts of ocean noise varies. You know, you can go from a single ship impacting the animals in its immediate vicinity to seismic surveys that can sonify or make noisy thousands of square kilometres of ocean and impact on every single marine mammal within that area. Noise pollution can exclude marine mammals from their habitats for extended periods, for weeks, months, or even in some cases years, depending on the source of the noise pollution. And that obviously has a major detrimental impact on those marine mammals. It may exclude them from their preferred feeding ground or breeding grounds. In some cases, noise pollution can directly lead to the death of the animals. In the case of military sonar, we believe that it's linked to the mass stranding of deep diving beaked whales. We think that they get frightened, their heart rate goes up, and it causes them to have, in effect, the bends, the same as some scuba divers suffer. And unfortunately, the more we understand, about noise pollution, the more we're convinced that overall it's having a detrimental impact on marine mammals at the population level. It impacts on their survivability, on their reproductive success, on their ability to forage and communicate, etc. What we don't know is what the end game is here, how major that impact is going to be. There are technical solutions to sources of noise pollution in our oceans. We need to build quieter ships, We need to look at limiting the use of civilian and military sonar in our ocean. We need to develop new and quieter methods of extracting minerals and oil and gas from our seas. The bad news is that climate change isn't helping. Our oceans are becoming more acidic and more acidic oceans transmit sound better, so they're inherently more noisy. So really now is the time to act. We're already in an era of biodiversity emergency and we know that ocean noise pollution is having major impacts not just on marine mammals, but on other marine species and their ecosystems. We need to do what we can to reduce existing sources of ocean noise. We need to prevent the introduction of new man-made sources of ocean noise and we need to better understand what the impacts of ocean noise are and the long term conservation prospects of our marine mammals and other marine species.
0: Dave Wall, Conservation Officer at the Irish Whale and Dolphin Group, and the notion an of noise underwater. And that concludes our avoid on this edition of the Maritime Ireland radio show. Wherever you've been listening, thank you for being part of the Community of the Sea. And you can read more about what's in the programme in the March edition of the Marine Times, where I'm also writing about the new research importance of that wonderful area in Kerry, the Mahories. The program is broadcast in Cork on CRY 104 FM, Yall, from where the program comes, on the east coast of County Cork. And also in Cork on UCC Radio, Bear Island Radio and West Cork FM. In Dublin on Near FM, Dublin City FM, Liffey Sound and Dublin South. In Galway, on Connemara Community Radio and Kinvara FM. On Dondok FM, Athlone Community Radio, Kilkenny City Radio. In Mayo, on Community Radio Castle Bar and Eris FM Bell Mollet. On Southwest Clare Radio, Radio Korka Boschkeen. On West Limerick 102 FM and Tipperary West Radio in Tipperary. Podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Mixcloud, Spotify and the TheMarineTimes.ie. The programme website is tomxweedymarine.ie or look up Maritime Ireland Radio Show. There's a blog there and details about the programme. Our email address is Show at gmail.com. That's Show at gmail.com where you can sign up also for the listeners' programme newsletter. And send your comments, please, and opinion for our book prize. Our phone and text number, 0872-555-197. That's 872 197 Sound supervision on the program by Justin Marr. Until our next program, the usual wish of fair sailing.